Man, we're just so glad that you have joined us for worship today at North Point Church. And I'll tell you what, I'm really excited about next week. Uh, we're going to add an addition to our online presence that we've been doing now for months. Uh, we're going to be doing this worship service at 9 a.m. We really want to encourage you to think about coming out for that. It's going to be warm, so you know you want to make sure you bring a hat or something to protect yourself from the sun and maybe bring a squirt bottle to keep yourself cooled off. Be sure you wear a mask. Uh, you know, these events you're hearing us talk about and we're saying wear a mask because honestly, if you don't do that, there, there are people who, who will not feel comfortable coming out. And so we ask everybody to help participate uh, with that in this COVID-19 season. By the way, on the 30th, not next week, but the week after that, you heard the word that uh, we have figured out we've not been doing any mass public baptisms. We have baptized some people over these last uh, few months. But on the 30th, we're planning to have our first gathered baptism because we have figured out how to do this safely in, uh, in a COVID-19 era. And, uh, and, it, and you, don't have to, you don't have to do like what this, uh, what this guy is. A church was announcing they were going to do baptisms. And, and uh, you know, there's, there really is a safe way that we can be able to do this. In fact, starting this week, we're going to start posting uh, some specific instructions about how we can do this safely uh, without risk or fear of any infection. Uh, but we want to encourage you, if you've been waiting to be baptized, uh, to think about doing that on the 30th. You can go uh, to our website there because following our 9 a.m. worship on the lawn, we're going to do baptisms. And uh, you can go to our website, northpoint.org baptism and get information and get signed up uh, for that. Now, I've been trying to keep you guys uh, updated on uh, kind of some things that are going on with uh, you know, our office that is being built. I just have to tell you that, man, we're really moving uh, very quickly now to the completion of this building, and it's pretty cool to, uh, uh, to see. They got all the T-bar in now. They're putting uh, you know, all of the uh, finishes into the bathroom. They'll be doing windows and doors on the interiors and so forth very quickly, and uh, it's just really beautiful uh, to watch how this building is coming together that we're going to be able to use, we hope, as our offices beginning in the fall. I hope we'll be back to being able to, uh, to work in our office. And by the way, I can't avoid taking a moment here to tell you, if I'm showing pictures, that you know, uh, in the last few weeks, I have two new grandkids. Now, I know you'd just love to see them. So uh, here's a picture on the left, Kyle and Emily, uh, their new little baby girl, Blake, Catherine. And uh, man, we really think she favors her grandma, Catherine, uh, Kathy Van Gronigan. If you know Kathy, you probably agree. And then uh, just a couple of days ago on Thursday, uh, Lauren and her husband, Josh, gave birth uh, to a little boy named Luke, Luke Stephen Delarian. And so, uh, man, I'm just so excited. I had to take a moment and show you guys my newest grandkids. So... Uh, well, I know that you didn't tune in today to, to see pictures of grandkids, so I want to talk with you about what we have been looking at over these last few weeks. In fact, the last couple of weeks, Pastor Shane has done a great job of introducing and teaching again on the eternal purposes that God has for us that are unchanging. And uh, this is when, when we talk about being purpose-driven, living a purpose-driven life, and uh, being a purpose-driven church, we're talking about these five eternal purposes 
that we live for. Pastor Shane, the last couple weeks, he started off by reminding us the first purpose is worship, that you and I were planned for our creator's pleasure. And when we offer ourselves up to him and we say, Lord, I want to live for you, that gives him great, great pleasure. In fact, Pastor Shane defined worship as you and I worship what we orbit our life around, what ignites our passion, and what drives our behavior. And uh, in light of that, I, I kind of got a kick out of this uh, headline from the Babylon Bee uh, that says, you know, college football fans, uh, they are uh, canceling the season would infringe on uh, their right to worship. And, you know, there are some people that worship other stuff, but God says, I want you to worship me. And then last week, we looked at this, uh, this great purpose of fellowship. And it has to do with the family of God, how God is building a forever family to be with him in heaven. And that's really what the church is all about. And God has a certain family likeness that he wants us all to have. And that's where we come to this third purpose we want to talk about today. And that's the purpose of discipleship. Because discipleship really could be defined that, that you and I were created to bear likeness to Jesus Christ. Because, and I want to talk to you about this today, he is the person that God is nuts about. In fact, there's a couple of passages of scripture that you'll see on your notes. The first from John chapter 6 and verse 27 where Jesus had just fed and did an incredible miracle, fed a crowd of 5,000 with five little pita loaves and a couple of sardines. And uh, the message of that went viral immediately. And so people started coming thinking he was going to become the guy who'd do miracle every day and feed him. And he says this, work for the food that lasts into eternal life. This is the food that the Son of Man, and that's the way Jesus liked to refer to himself. This is the food the Son of Man will give you. After all, notice, the Father has placed his seal of approval on him. Now, if you will, God is the one who has said, this is the kind of man, this is the kind of woman that I want you to be like. I want you to be like my son, Jesus. In fact, on at least three occasions, the New Testament says that God broke the silence of heaven and audibly spoke his approval for Jesus. In fact, uh, the Apostle Peter tells about one of those in 2 Peter 1, verses 16 uh, to 18. If you've printed out notes, uh, you'll see it there. Uh, if not, it's coming up on the screen. Look at what it says. We weren't making up clever stories when we told you about the powerful coming. He's speaking here about the first coming, the appearing on earth of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes when he received honor and glory from God the Father. Now he's talking here about a time where Jesus took three disciples, Peter, James, and John, and they went up on what we call the Mount of Transfiguration. <clears throat> and Jesus, it says, was suddenly transfigured before them. His glory began to shine out of him in this powerful way. And look at, look at what it says. The voice, uh, the voice from the majestic glory of God said, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. And we ourselves heard that voice from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Now, this is why Jesus matters so much to God. It isn't that you and I don't matter, but you and I are really not 
the same persons as the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, I want to say to you that, you know, you can refer to Jesus as a great historical person, and he was. But if you think that that's all he was, was some great figure in history, or he was some religious innovator, or that he was somehow a master teacher, or that he was a totally devoted martyr, you wouldn't even be getting warm about who Jesus really is and why he matters. In fact, there are two main reasons that I want to emphasize, if you'll write these down. Number one is because of the real identity that he revealed. The real identity that Jesus revealed. You know, it's, it's interesting that again and again and again, as you read through the Gospels, people as they encountered him, they'd be asking, who is this man? Nobody ever taught like this guy. Nobody did the things that he did. They heard what he said. They saw the miracles he performed, turning water into wine, stopping immediately a, a storm on the Sea of Galilee, taking, taking a few pieces of bread and feeding a multitude such that they had 12 baskets full left over afterwards. And people were constantly wondering, who is this guy? Well, I want to point you to a passage of scripture found in the book of Colossians. In fact, if you've printed out message notes, you'll find that, uh, that uh, passage there. But I want to read it from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. Here's what scripture has to say about Jesus, about the Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth. And then I'm going to go on to this phrase, all things have been created through him and for him. And he's before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now, there are seven things I just want to call out to you. If you'll just write these down real quickly that you find in this passage. Number one, it describes Jesus as the visible embodying of God. It says that he's the image of God who has come to live among us in flesh. And uh, scripture says, in fact, in what we've just read, that God's fullness was pleased to dwell in him. Now this is the great truth. Kyle just sang about this a moment ago, that the eternal son of God became Jesus of Nazareth. And as the eternal son, we call this the incarnation, Jesus who was the infinite one, came as an infant and then lived as a finite man for a finite period of time on earth. And scripture calls him the icon of God. It, if, if you will, it's the way in which, like an author of a novel, would insert himself into his novel to become one of the characters. He's the visible embodying of God. Second, if you'll write this down, he's the maker who sustains everything. In fact, it's interesting how the Bible teaches that the, the persons of the Trinity, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, each have unique roles that they perform. 
And this says of Jesus that he was what we would call the agent of creation. He was the one who made everything and he's the great sustainer of it. And then a third, he's the one for whom we exist. The Bible says through him everything was made and for him we were made. And that's why, by the way, when you surrender yourself to Jesus, you're going to find you'll have a sense that you've, you've come home at last. Because you're coming into a relationship with your creator you were made to have. And then fourth, he's the leader of his church. In fact, he, he refers here in verse 18 to he's the head of his body, the church. And if you will, Jesus, he's like the older brother who welcomes us into the forever family of God that God is building that he calls his church. And then number five, he's the prototype for our full salvation. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, a prototype, in fact, uh, he actually uses the word. He's the firstborn from the dead. And the word firstborn in Greek is the word prototype, uh, prototokos. And it's very similar to our word prototype. When you have a prototype of something, if you envision a new car, you build the first one of it and you see how, can it, how, how does it work? What's its capacities? And when it describes Jesus as the firstborn, the prototokos from the dead, it means that Jesus is the one who lived out in his own experience what the fullness of my salvation and your salvation will be. Here's, here's what he means by that. Jesus wasn't certainly, certainly wasn't the, the first man to die, nor was he the first man who, when he died, his body was placed in a grave and his spirit went into paradise with God in heaven. But he was the first man who three days later took his body back again and his body was resurrected and made into a, into a kind of a body that's far beyond the physical body that he had before. It was a resurrection body. And Jesus is saying the same thing's gonna happen with us. We're gonna die and when we do, our body will be laid in a grave and our spirit will go to be with God in heaven and some future day, our body will be resurrected for an eternal age when you and I, as one author says, will become eternally invincibilized. Now, Jesus, Jesus is the prototype of that. That's what gives us confidence that we can face death and eternity as well. And then number six, he's the supreme one in all things. And you'll notice again and again in this passage that it says that he's the first, he's before, he's the beginning, he's the head, he's above all things because Jesus Christ is intended to be first in everything. Not just to be present in your life, not even prominent in your life, but to be preeminent in your life because of who he is. And then number seven, he's the savior who suffered for me. That Jesus Christ was born into this world to offer himself for you and me with his matchless life, as he laid it down, it became the perfect sacrifice that takes care of all of our sins and all of our darkness. He made peace through the blood of his cross. By the way, that's why I love Christ, because of all that he did for me and laying down his life on a cross. Of all the things I could say about Jesus, I tell you, nobody's ever done that for me before. 
but he did. Now, as you look over that list, here's the thing. Every one of those things, God says, man, he did A++ with that. And that's why the Bible says God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name. In fact, one Hindu scholar once admitted to the missionary E. Stanley Jones, he said, there's no one else who is seriously bidding for the heart of the world except Jesus Christ. There's no one else even on the field to compete. Now, God says that was his real identity. But there's a second thing, and that is the full humanity that he displayed. And it's important that we touch this. Because discipleship is all about our having Christ-likeness. See, Jesus came not only to reveal to us what God was like, but he came to be fully human and show us what God had in mind for human beings to, to, like, to be like. One of the great Christian uh, meetings uh, in history, uh, they came up with this phrase, that Jesus was truly God and he was truly man. He wasn't, he wasn't a blending of like 50% God or 50% man. No, the scripture says that all of God's fullness lived in him. And I, I love how J.B. Phillips, the author of the, the little book, Your God is Too Small, how he puts it. When he says, it would be a mistake to suppose that the eternal God is no bigger than Jesus of Nazareth, limited as he was by time and space and circumstance. But the biggest, widest, and highest ideas of God that the mind can conceive arrange themselves without dissonance or incongruity around the character that Jesus revealed. Jesus was fully God, but we know he was also fully man. Now, some people think of Jesus as if he was like almost like a Marvel uh, superhero, that he was somehow in disguise as a, as a human being and, and his real identity was something else. But Jesus was truly God among us, but he was full humanity. In fact, it's God's intention to make us like him. I love how Romans 8, 29 in the message uh, translation uh, puts this. This is a familiar passage. We're used to hearing, you know, God that, that God can take everything and cause it to work together for good. That because those that God foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. But I love how the message puts this this scripture. Look at what it says: God knew what He was doing from the very beginning, and He decided from the outset to shape the lives of those who love Him along the same lines as the life of His Son. The Son, he's talking here about Jesus of Nazareth, stands first in the line of humanity that he restored. And we see the original and intended shape of our lives there in him. One author has said that Jesus is the only complete person who's ever lived. The rest of us are just fragments. But God says, I want you to understand his true, real humanity and I want you to live the way he lived. In fact, I've pointed this out to you before. This is, it's fascinating to me that even other religions, I read a book by a Hindu who was saying Jesus of Nazareth was the epitome of what our religion teaches. I read a Buddhist book that said the same thing. He's the enlightened one. I've heard Scientologists talk about Jesus as the one who was perfectly self-actualized and integrated 
as a, as a real person. Uh, I've heard humanists who don't even believe in religion say that the thing about Jesus of Nazareth was his great dignity as a person. And I laughed and chuckled a few years ago when I heard business leaders say that Jesus is the embodiment of the perfect kind of a leader, a servant leader. And I want to tell you, friends, that's because Jesus Christ is the kind of person that God is nuts about. He is the ideal person. In fact, when criticisms are leveled against Christians, it's because we fail to live up to what Jesus was like. And this is why Ephesians 4, where the Apostle Paul is talking about the process of discipleship, he says God's purpose is that we become mature people reaching the very height of Christ's full stature. That we grow up in every way to Christ. You know, there was never a description of Jesus where he came up being less than he needed to be. There was never a time that you could look at the life of Jesus that he was failing to be what life required of him and what God wanted him to be. This is why he was perfectly pleasing to the Father. Now, this is what living in discipleship with Jesus is really all about, my friend. It's that you and I were created to, to be like Jesus. In fact, Jesus said, a disciple's not above his teacher. And it's enough for the disciple to be like his teacher. So how does that happen? Five things I want to touch on with you this morning. In fact, I want to examine carefully two of them. And I want to touch on the others, and the last couple we'll really just mention. Number one, and that, and that would be that if we're going to live in real discipleship with Jesus, that first of all, we've got to take up his offer. And I want to challenge you to take up his offer to you. Now, 2,000 years ago, as Jesus walked the earth, he called disciples by name to follow him. And he's doing exactly the same thing today. He's inviting you into a union, a relationship with himself. And I challenge you to take up his offer to follow him. In fact, look at his words, Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. And, and by the way, he, he's not inviting you to try some new religion. He doesn't even say come to church. Notice what he says. He says, come to me. Come into a union with me that is eternal. You who are weary and heavy burdened. And he says, and I will give you rest. And then he says an interesting thing. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart. And you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. Now, you and I have have seen yokes like on oxen, for example, that can pull a heavy load. But I really think when Jesus was talking about this, he was probably referring to the kinds of yokes that, that people used to carry loads. In fact, people often do this, just take a stick and they'll put it over their shoulders and put things on both sides. But you see, it's not, it's not comfortable, it's painful. And it doesn't stay balanced. And, and so one of the things Jesus, as a carpenter, probably did was helping to, to form and make yokes that could be worn on the neck that made it easy and comfortable to carry a load. And by the way, this phrase, to take my yoke upon you, that Jesus gives, 
That phrase is really referring, it's a common way in Jesus' day, people invited someone to come under their teaching. Now, there's kind of a paradox here that I, I don't, have you noticed it? That Jesus says, if you're weary and burdened, take my yoke on you and you'll find rest because my burden is light. And I want to say to you that when you come to Jesus, you're, you're going to feel like something has been lifted from your shoulders, not something laid on them. So what does he mean here about my burden is light? Well, he's, he's describing the difference between the burdens he puts on us as disciples and the weights that we carry of our sinfulness and of our selfishness in our life. For example, it's the difference between the weight of the disciplines that he calls us to live under compared to the, the weight of regrets. The weight of disciplines is like pounds on us, but the weight of regrets is tons. It's the difference between the burden of living with integrity that places responsibility on us and the load of guilt and shame and the fear of being found out of living in a way that's wrong. It's the difference between the liberty of walking in the light confidently with Jesus and the confusion and the bondage of stumbling around in the darkness. And Jesus says, let me put my yoke on you and walk with me. And he says, and I'll teach you. See, that's how in our experiences in life we say, Lord, I need your help. I, I need to know, how do I love this person the way that I should? Lord, how do I deal with this situation that I'm in? And Jesus says, learn from me. So you got to take up his offer. That's number one. Number two, you got to take in his word completely see Jesus says I want you to learn from me and Jesus said to his original disciples man there's all kinds of stuff I want to teach you guys but I can't unload the whole pickup truck with you right now but when I leave the Holy Spirit's going to come and he's going to bring back to you the teachings that I've said and then I want you to write those down in your word and you see that's what the word of Christ that we have in the New Testament this is what the Bible is really all about Jesus is calling on us to settle the issue for good that his word will be last in our life. And so we begin a relationship with his words. Look at how he put it. If you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples and you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. You see, Jesus said, you abide in my word by letting it abide in you. You let it get into your heart completely and you begin to live in obedience to it. And as you do, the bad programming and the misinformation and the lack of understanding about how to live, that frankly has contributed to you living a substandard life, living beneath the privilege God intended for you as a human being. He says, you're gonna overcome that this is why your life's been distorted. But he says, I want to teach you how to relate properly to God and to yourself and to others. Number three, write this down. We got to take on suffering like he did. We take on suffering like he did. Now, I got to say to you that suffering isn't a desirable thing to us, but it's not optional to us as disciples. It's a real part of the life of life in the world in which we live. And it was a real part of the life of Jesus. 
In fact, Peter, in his book from 1 Peter 2, 21, he says, you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, notice, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. And in fact, Jesus says, I want you to learn from me both the book of 1 Peter and 2 Peter. You ought to take time to check them out because one of their themes is how we walk as disciples of Jesus through times of suffering. Now, you know what? Most people, frankly, when, when things begin to get difficult and pain begins to come into their life and they start to suffer, they ask, well, what am I doing wrong? And I want to say to you that uh, maybe nothing. Perhaps that's part of the reason that God is allowing pain and suffering to come into your life because God knows that things that hurt instruct us. And in fact, this is part of how he developed his own son. Look at Hebrews 2.10 and chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. It says, in bringing many sons to glory. In fact, that's God's purpose for humanity. To bring men and women to be his children and to show the glory of God in their life like Jesus did. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Would you underline that phrase? Because I want to amplify that. Make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering because although he was a son, Hebrews 5 goes on to say, he learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Now, Jesus wasn't spared suffering. He wasn't spared hardship. In fact, he wasn't shocked by it at all and in fact warned us, warned us that we should expect it in our lives. But he always looked to the Father throughout every experience of testing and grief and challenge. And part of God's plan to fully develop his son, Jesus, is the same methodology that God uses with us. Now listen, when we're put into extremes and when we're put into times where we're tested, those are the times that we are being shaped by God just as Jesus of Nazareth was. And just as his glory emerged and shone in the way in which he did suffering, Jesus says, I want to teach you how to go through pain and difficulty and suffering like I did. Now, it feels like we're being pushed to our limits when we get into extremes. But you see, that's how strengths and how good virtues emerge as we push through those difficult experiences and we use the muscles of faith and faithfulness and obedience to God and trusting him. You know, sometimes when a new car is developed, it's taken out to a proving grounds where it can be run through the paces and the engineers say, what we want to do is, we, they use a phrase, we want to push the ends of the envelope to see exactly what this car is capable of. And this passage says that Jesus was made perfect and he was brought to perfection. That doesn't mean that he was sinful and he was made sinless finally and could be our savior. But what it means is that he was brought to full completion as the glory of God as a human being. He came to his fullest development and goodness by going all the way to the cross and beyond it. 
You know, in baseball, a pitcher has to pitch all nine innings in order to have a perfect game. And Jesus, throughout his entire life, was learning obedience and he was showing perfect obedience to the Father and he was tested and tried. But I'll tell you what, it was those last innings of Jesus' life that were the greatest. They were the great test of him. His hands were bound behind him. And he was rejected by mob rule and he was spat upon and beaten and lashed. He'd never experienced anything like that. And yet scripture says he didn't retaliate. He kept entrusting himself to the father because he knew this is what was required for him to live. And when the hand that had frankly raised the mountains and carved out the oceans and pushed the continents into their place, that same hand that had touched lepers and healed them and had worked to lift people in love, when that same hand was stretched out and nailed to a cross, Jesus had never experienced that before. It became his greatest test. And when he was lifted up on the cross and he hung for six hours in agonizing pain, in fact, the word excruciating is, is created out of, the, out of the word crucified. And he stayed there and put up with the mocking of people standing in front of him saying, come down from the cross and then we'll believe. And he who could have called 10,000 angels to take him down stayed on that cross in obedience and in love because only staying there could he die and save us. Jesus had never faced that test. And when finally the hour came that the fullness of all of human sin and darkness and judgment fell upon him and he felt the absolute vacuuming and absence of God's presence. That was his ultimate test. And even in that hell, he could offer life to those who were dying with him. Even then, he looked to the Father. You see, Jesus Christ passed the test with flying colors. But it was only revealed in suffering and difficulty. And Jesus says, I, I, I want you to understand as disciples, I'm going to call on you to do the same. In fact, look at this great passage from Hebrews chapter 12 that says, let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. Jesus ran the race that God marked out for him. So let's run the one marked out for us. And we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. And now he's seated in the place of honor beside God's throne think of all the hostility he endured for sinful people and then you won't become weary and give up after all you've not had to you've not yet given your life in a struggle against sin see it saying Jesus is saying I, I want you to come to me in your suffering and learn from me keep your eyes on me Corey Ten Boom said it so well look around be distressed Look within, be depressed, look to him and be at rest. Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. Learn from me. 
Now, you take up his offer, you take in his word, you take on suffering. Two things I want to mention, just mention and we're done. Number four, take your place in his family. And Pastor Shane talked about this last week. You can go back and listen to that message that you and I are called not just to be believers, but belongers. That Jesus' greatest idea was to form a family of people and bring them together so that in the family of God, we can be encouraged by one another and strengthened. In fact, look at the words of Jesus to his disciples. Luke 22, 28 to 30, he said this. You have stood by me in the troubles that have tested me. And you will eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. Now, what's amazing to me is that Jesus of Nazareth, as the matchless, perfect son of God, fully God, fully man, needed people to stand by him. And he says, you and I need to do that same thing. That's why I'm so excited about the challenge that is, we're building toward small groups in our church because it's in small groups that we learn how to stand with each other and support and encourage one another. And, and why we want to challenge you in this upcoming 40 days of prayer to be involved in a group. We can do this during COVID-19 and we can do it safely because we need this. If Jesus needed support, you and I do. And I love, look again at that verse, what he says. You're going to eat and drink with me at my table in my kingdom. Jesus says, I have a place for you at the table. And he's really saying, you know, the party really can't get started without you. I want you to be in that. So take your place in his family. And then number five, take your position on his team. Now, friend, I want to tell you that you were made by God to make a difference in the world and in the lives of other people. And Jesus Christ is fielding a team of difference makers to change the world. And he's got a position and a role for you to play. And next week, for the next two weeks, we're going to talk about that. How you take your position on his team to serve him. But friend, I want to talk to you as we finish up here. I just want to say to you, have you taken up Jesus' offer? You see, he made you for himself, my friend, and you're never going to be satisfied. There's a hole inside your heart that only Jesus Christ can fill because you were made to be filled by him. And he's not inviting you to a religion. He's inviting you to a personal relationship with him. In fact, you may be listening today. You may be of a completely different religion. You may have no religion in your life, but I want to say to you that Jesus Christ is your creator and he invites you to himself. Will you receive him into your life? Will you just say these words to him as I say them out loud? Jesus Christ, I need you. I want to let go of my own sinful self, self-living and, and I, want to, I want to walk with you. I want to learn how to be what you have had in mind for me to be. Come into my life today. Forgive me. Give me this eternal life you promise. And make me the person you've had in mind for me to be. Oh, that's the purpose, my friend, you were made for. And nothing else will satisfy. 